You then got a barrister who is critical of the instructing solicitor's team, thinks that the junior solicitor on the case or whatever is just not up to the job. So, David, this is ridiculous. You've got to do something about it. That's me. And what can I do about it? And I did try once to do something about it. And that was 30 odd years ago. And I spoke to the solicitor about one member of the team. And I learned very, very quickly and never made that mistake again, that the solicitor would immediately and quite rightly protect his team. And it's the same the other way with the bar. You know, you learn by your mistakes to say, you know, Mr. XQC doesn't think that your number two is up to it. And sorry, but the main man, main woman on the case would immediately protect the number two. And be quite honest now, as a clerk, you cop out of that. If, if a member of Chambers has got up an issue, then that's really for the senior solicitor on the case with the barrister concerned. Then they should go and have a drink and sort it out between them. Don't put me in the middle. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 60 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya. And today's guest is David Grief. David has been described in a recent Times article as a giant among clerks and has spent over 40 years managing barristers' chambers, including being senior clerk and head of administration at Access Court Chambers, known at one point as one of the best set of chambers in the land. Now, if you aren't already familiar with how the legal system works in the UK, here's a quick breakdown. There are essentially two types of lawyers. Solicitors, the ones that you see working in large law firms drafting and negotiating contracts, and barristers, the ones that you see dressed in a wig and robe appearing before judges in court. Now, barristers in particular work in chambers as opposed to law firms, and clerks are an absolutely critical part of the running of chambers. While barristers focus on their legal work, clerks do pretty much everything else, from getting tea and biscuits for chambers, to printing documents and bringing them to court, negotiating fees, managing clients and the diaries of their barristers, and running the marketing and business development of chambers. Clerks are also known to be a barrister's therapist, marriage counsellor, discipline master, agents, and debt collector. And if all that still confuses you, then think of chambers like a football team. The clerks are its manager. But what does it take to actually be a clerk? Particularly one who has been working as a clerk since the early 1970s, way before the age of the internet. And what is it like clerking for some of the finest legal minds, including the former Chief Justice of England and Wales? Why did David decide to move to Singapore in 2018? And what does he hope to achieve moving forward? We unpack all that and more in this episode. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. School was okay. People say the days of school are the best days of your life. For me, I wouldn't agree. I don't think I was bottom of the class, but I wasn't star at school. And then when it came to exam time, I took all my exams. I failed a lot. So that was in the fifth form in those days. So that would have been at the age of 16. And I failed a lot. So my dad put me back through the same year all again. So I went back to school and redid the fifth form. The school was a small school. And each class had 12, 13 people in it. 
And I knew all the people in the form below. And I went back. And it was, I think, the best thing that my dad ever did because it set me up for my career because I went back to school, not feeling like the bottom of the class, not feeling what anything. But I went back, I was made deputy head boy. I was the school swimming captain and I sort of had some authority. I now know that that was a turning point in my life. I failed all my exams again the second time. (laughs) But going back for that second year, I grew up and I left school at the age of 17 in July 1971. When you left school, wasn't this around the time where you first heard about what this career of being a clerk was? So just winding back to my passion, my passion is always aeroplanes. I used to go to London Gatwick Airport, London Heathrow, as a five-year-old in short trousers, standing there. I had an Ian Allen, as it's called, aircraft spotters book, and I used to tick off every aeroplane's registration number. I had this passion for aeroplanes. And one thing that I always wanted to do was to be an airline pilot. But of course, having failed everything at school twice, was no option. And because of flying, I was passionate about travel and seeing the world. And I tried to join the travel industry. I applied to then Thomas Cook, and that didn't work either. So I was a bit of a loss. I did not know what I wanted to do. And in April or May of 1971, I went to somewhere called the Fairfield Halls in Croydon, which is south of London. And my mum and dad, and maybe my brother and sister, I can't remember. And the couple that joined us was a couple called Rosalind and Keith Goodfellow. And we knew them through the church. They didn't live in our area. They lived out west in Surrey. But he was a QC. Now, QC meant nothing to me, but Keith Goodfellow. And he was a construction QC. He came from chambers of 22 old buildings, now known as Atkin Chambers, and he was one of the stars of the construction bar. None of that meant anything, but that's his background. And I can remember walking up the stairs into the auditorium, and he said, what am I going to do when I leave school? And I said, I've tried this, I've tried that, and I really don't know. And he said, well, what you should do is come to London and meet my clerk. And his clerk was called Robert Allen. And I thought this was a good thing. But getting on the train, going to London on my own, which probably I hadn't done before, I don't know, and walking up Fleet Street and then turning up to Lincoln's Inn. And he was at 22 Buildings to meet Robert. Robert, I imagine he was in his mid-40s, early 50s. And we chatted, told me a bit about the job. And he said, I've set you up a day's work experience. So I came back to London went to the temple, to Lamb Building, went to chambers at Lamb Building. The senior clerk was called Eric Cooper. And if you look online, you'll find references to Eric Cooper. He was the clerk to the then Lord Chancellor, Attorney General, Helwyn Jones, I think he was in those chambers. And I spent a day with Eric Jean, who was the second clerk. And I came away thinking, yeah, that's sort of, that seems fine. Don't learn much, but you did start to sort of see barristers, but I didn't know what a barrister was. I didn't know what a solicitor was. I didn't know what a set of chambers was. No, nothing. No, nothing at all. Anyway, I went back to Robert and said, yeah, it's good. So he said, David, I've arranged two interviews, one in chambers at Seven Stone Buildings. The clerk was Ernest Waring. Ernest was a, a sort of senior guy. Lincoln's Inn is a bit sort of, I don't want to be uh, told off of this, but it was a bit sort of dusty and a bit old fashioned. Chancery law. 
trusts, property, wills, and all of that. Not quite the same now. And the other job was on fourth floor grazing chambers. Grazing chambers was a modern building. Hadn't been there long. The senior clerk was in his early 30s, Leslie Page. And my rationale was I chose Grayson Chambers because the senior clerk was young and the building was modern. And that was my only point to choose. And I got the job. I got offered two jobs. You've got two interviews, but it wasn't so much uh, an interview. In other words, David, I've got you two jobs almost. And which one do you want to take? And I took the job with Leslie Page. What were the interviews like? Was it more about getting to know who you were as a person? You were just out of school. You couldn't really offer yeah. anything. I didn't have to have a CV. I didn't have to have anything other than I was wearing a suit and look smart and all of that. My parents would have, and I always was like that, and I would have always been well turned out. My dad would have made sure that was the case. But it was more about me and whether I was going to fit in. So started there on the 16th of August 1971. I opened a bank account, my first bank account, with a bank just down the road from Grayson Chambers and Grayson Road, Barclays Bank. My dad banked at Barclays, so he fixed it with the manager to see me and opened an account at Barclays. Um, my pay was £8 a week. That's one meal <laughs> these days in London. Well, and I could get lunch. Uh, and I'm going to talk now. I I'm talking old money because it was just decimalization came in in February that year, 1971. I could get lunch for less than 25 pence. So there's a pound and 50p and 25p. So I could get lunch for uh, 10 or 15 pence. And we used to have luncheon vouchers. So that was part of the salary as a luncheon voucher. And you get 15 pence a day. Back then when you were a junior clerk, this was before the age of the internet. What was it like then? The working chambers was commercial work. It was particularly focused on banking. It was planning inquiries, local governments. So quite a number of the cases we were doing, it was the early days of shopping centres, shopping malls. Going back in time, it was just high street. And then suddenly the start of malls. And we were doing a lot of inquiries into these shopping centres. And also it was the time of motorways, we had the M1 in England, but nothing much else. And so you had the M25 inquiry, you had the M11 inquiry, and all these roads today. But England is one of these places where everything has to have an inquiry, and they take for months. In later life, there was the Terminal 5 inquiry at Heathrow, and they go on and on and on, and there are all these objectors about everything. And I was interested in what the members were doing. I got interested in their work in my limited way. I somehow, I don't know how, impressed them because within six months there was the senior clerk there was the junior clerk and there was me so I was the second junior clerk the first junior clerk left at Christmas so I'd been there less than six months four months five months and I was very keen to be promoted I don't know quite what was possessing me what did I know anyway I found myself first junior clerk by Christmas 1971 so there was the senior clerk and there was me when the senior clerk was off, you know, so to speak, in charge. I mean, it was quite something, age 17 going on 18. And that was a decision of Chambers. And Chambers then, I suppose, were 14, 15 strong. And uh, that was a decision of Chambers. I think some thought it was a good idea. Some weren't too sure. But I got the job. And that was um, really quite something, I think, at that time. It was, But I felt it was something I really wanted. I didn't want somebody to come in above me. And someone came in below me. So suddenly I had... A junior clerk below me. 
I think for a lot of people listening, they would probably hear this word like Clark and wonder what that means. I mean, like the centerpiece is managing the diaries of barristers. But when you just come in, were you making coffee and tea for them? What was it like? Yeah, it was the early days of the photocopier. And we were one of the first set of chambers to have a plain paper copier. And I had to go to rank Xerox in Euston Road for a course on how to put in the toner, how to <laughs> unjack, how to do this, how to do that. So I did a course. <laughs> I always remember going to going for that course. So, you know, had to do photocopying, the papers to court. Now you look at papers that go to court now, it's boxes and boxes and boxes of files. In those days, it was a file. The rest was just books, books and books and books. For me, it was books to court. And there could be 50 books because you didn't photocopy them as they do them today. You took the book and you provided the usher in court with the book list. And the book list had to be in by 9.30 to give the usher the time to get the books out for the judge and mark the page. And because I was in Gray's Inn, I had to cross Hoban, walk through Lincoln's Inn itself to the back entrance of the law courts in Carey Street. Many, 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 many clerks used trolleys, but I didn't want to be seen with a trolley for whatever reason. And I used to strap these books up, 25 books in a strap, and then carry them like that across the road. Incredibly heavy. I'm sure my arms are longer today than they were when I was growing up. But those books to court, yeah. And in the summer, obviously not Singapore temperatures, but pretty hot in the summer. And you wore a suit, a tie, you know, jacket, buttoned up, smart because you're going to court carrying these books. And yes, so making the tea, chambers tea every day, members of chambers had tea in the sort of reception area of chambers. So I had to make tea. I had to order the biscuits, order the tea, order the coffee. If we didn't have a fair price or we didn't have a Tesco, we had to go somewhere and and it got delivered. My job to make sure we had enough biscuits, enough tea, enough sugar. The milk came every day, delivered to the front door of chambers. When I obviously stepped up a bit, that was the job of the next junior clerk. I was never too proud. And in fact, one thing I learned that as a clerk, whether I'm the most junior or the most senior, there's nothing that I wouldn't do just to help out. So if necessary, my senior clerk would make the tea. And, and I've done all of that right the way through my career. If some books need to be rushed to court or something needs to be done in chambers, whether I'm the senior clerk or the best set of chambers in the land, it doesn't matter, I go and do it. And I learned that from my senior clerk. Nothing is ever beyond you. Just dive in and help because it's a team effort. Anybody watching this podcast, I'd recommend that they um, sort of research Barristers, Clarks, there's a lot written out there in my time or before, not so much written in today's. But an analogy is a bit like a football manager. You've got your stars and you're their life coach, you're their psychiatrist, your therapist, marriage counsellor, deal with members of chambers of a sort of in a sort of breakdown situation, divorce situation, bereavement, dealing with their fees. You're advising them on the cases to take on or not to take on. You're dealing with diaries. And it's not simply one case, one case. Sometimes you're offered a case, which is perhaps slightly overlaps with the next case, but it's an unmissable case. So you're trying to manage the diaries, talking to the court as to how you can move that fixture and play with that fixture. Because there are cases that can move people's careers on and get into the press, get into the law reports. And it's all about someone comes in as a pupil, joins chambers, you're making their careers. It is said that a clerk can make or break. And I've always 
made in my life, never broken careers. But it's a job of many applications. Someone said, what's it like being a clerk? Or how do I become a clerk? Or what do I do in chambers? And it is very, very difficult to explain it in a, in a, in a few sentences. You have to live it. And one thing it's key to do is to learn about the members of chambers, because it's a chambers, a group of self-employed people who pay into our pot to pay for the building, to pay for the staff. So everybody's self-employed. So we have cases against each other. So member against member. As a clerk, you sit in the middle, you divide your brain in half, and you hear both sides of the argument, but don't talk to the other side about the other side's case. And it's important to know how people think, how they work, how they tick, how far you can push them before they explode. Because some people want to do one case at a time. Other people want to take on as many cases as they can possibly do. They're a complete nightmare because then you've got to manage that caseload. But they're there to do their work. The rest is down to the clerk. So the instructing solicitor brings the case to chambers. The case goes to the barrister. And in the early days of clerking, it was often the clerk deciding which barrister was the best person for the job. It's different today because there's a lot more you know, directories and internet and websites and everything. But it's how many cases can you pile on this person before they get angry? So you, you get to know their breaking points, their personalities. How do you um, figure yeah. something like that? Is it just through trial and error to see whether they can handle it? I think I probably was good at it. I mean, there's two things. It's understanding people and also having a good memory. Um, I was always congratulated on my memory. I could add a, it's, you know, as you get older, it's not as good as it was, but I do have a good memory, a good memory for names. I was listening to other clerks giving interviews as well, and they said that sometimes we will also discuss the legal aspects of a brief rather than just telling you, do this. And barristers found that very helpful. Solicitor would ring you up and say, I've got this type of case. And I've learned a, probably a lot of more law than I like to admit. So what's it about? Who do we act for? How much money is at stake? What are we hoping as an end result? Because in the early days, you would take, 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 take cases on and you wouldn't always go and consult with the member of chambers as to whether this is something that we should be doing. That's happened in later times. But yeah, I mean, I would put my head around the door of a member of chambers and say, I've got this case, but they want to know a bit about it. So you've got to know what it's about. And then as you get more senior in the job, and then you're starting to agree the fee. The fees is all down to the clerk. There's no member of chambers input whatsoever. They're there just to prepare and argue the case. Everything is down to me. So I'd go to the member of chambers and say, tell me what it's about, how much money at stake, what's your preparation time, how many witnesses, what's the money at stake, what are we trying to achieve? So then I ring the solicitor and then start talking fees. And that part of my rationale for asking sometimes very large sums of money is because one's got to know about the case, you know, in terms of justifying the fees. You can't just say, Mr. X or Miss X, who's going to spend a week's preparation for these reasons, it needs that. There's more into it. They've got a particular star barrister, like a bit of a pop star. You can't price that on time. There is the star factor, which has a price, which you can't put a value on as to however the clients perceive that value. And it's staggering when I was agreeing fees, which were greater than the value of my house. So that's, you know, and it sort of, then it's all, it goes, all goes out. it's just all about numbers and it's sort of, you forget, you don't then sort of compare it with anything really sometimes, but it's what it's worth to the client. Is it true that in terms of speaking of fees, that the collection of fees can be, and still is quite an issue, you might 
provide a service now and five years later, you still haven't been paid Correct. yet. And you can't uh, chase them because you have other members who might be instructed by the same. A bit of that because you've got your clients going back in time. Solicitors used to be blacklisted for not paying fees. You could go to the Law Society. Uh, they could be disciplined for non-payment of fees because there was a time when the instructing solicitor was responsible for counsel's fees. So whether the solicitor got paid or not, it was his duty to pay the barrister. That's all changed now, but that was at that time. You've got one firm that sent a lot of work to Chambers. You've got one angry member of Chambers because there's a bill being outstanding for two years but you don't get them blacklisted because otherwise the other half dozen members of chambers, that source of work gets switched on. So that a sort of diplomacy on my part to try and work it all through. You had solicitors at that time would collect the money from the clients. If they had a big payment from the client, keep it on the client account for a year. You made quite a good turn on the interest before they paid the barrister. That was all going on at that time. Can't happen now. How would barristers manage? Because it depends on what kind of work they were doing. They would be paid very, very little. You start off at the bar doing what I've always described as knockabout work. Get in front of a judge, get experience. Perhaps the analogy now is a registrar. We call them masters in the UK. We go to the county court, the county court judge. We did some magistrates work, but often on licensing as opposed to criminal. We didn't do any criminal work. I've never been in a criminal set of trends. But it's small work because a barrister is, is an advocate, so he's got to get advocate experience. And there's nothing like a young advocate in front of a nasty judge to give him really good, or him or her, good experience. We were doing a certain amount of employment work in those days, employment tribunals was going on. That was the early days in employment work. That sort of work did get paid quite well because these were small cases. These were big cases. We did quite a lot of work for local authorities. I mean, fees did get paid. There were some old debts, but it wasn't unusual in those days to have fees outstanding for a year. Now it's all tightened up, get your fees paid in 28 days, often fees get paid ahead of the case, etc., etc. It's all changed. It's all changed because solicitors weren't paying quicker as well. So they pull their fees into the client and they're obviously going to get their disbursements settled as well. That has changed. But there was fee notes that get sent in. You'd have fee notes and you put the date of the last fee. So it's beyond computers, but you'd put the date of the last fee note at the bottom. And there was a whole line of dates, several, two rows of dates, because you'd be billing every month. You'd write letters saying, this hasn't been settled. I wasn't very good. I'm probably not very good, still not very good, but I wasn't very good at writing letters. My, my senior clerk often used to have to sort of um, uh, take my drafts and change them around a bit <laughs> in those days. And it was picking up the phone as a junior clerk, typing the fee notes, Speaking of fee notes, uh, just going back a little bit, very soon after you started work first, there was the UK miners strike and the three-day work week, and you ended yep. up having to write the fee notes under gas lamps. Can you share a bit about that entire period? Yes, so this was done before from memory. And as a result of miners strike, there was no coal, and there was no coal for the power stations or limited coal. So they had to ration electricity. I mean, gas was there, but it was more about electric. We would know in chambers by something in the newspaper, I think, that if you worked in London WC1 on a Wednesday in the afternoon between two and six, the power would go off. And this, I believe, it was the autumn. And so in the UK, in the autumn, progressively, it gets dark by four in the afternoon. So we had gas lamps, 
my job to go and find the gas lamps because you could imagine candles run out, gas lamps run out, or gas, G-A-Z was the brand. In the recent article that appeared in the Times about me, the reference to writing phenotes, it wasn't so much writing. If we did have electric typewriters, they were useless because there was no power. So we had to use go back to the old sit-up and beg manual typewriters. And we used carbon paper, and then it progressively, then phenotes used to get photocopied, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it was a challenge on working. And I can't remember how long it went on for, but certainly I, I do remember it quite clearly with candles and gas lamps and making sure when you go home at night, because you could go home at the time of a power cut to make sure that all the lights were switched off, all the candles were out, all the gas lamps were out, because it was quite a fire risk as well. Sorry, it wasn't just in chambers, it was across London. Wherever you worked, it was shop, shop, anything. Uh, you were affected by the power cuts. And we spoke quite a bit about solicitors earlier, and I wonder if you could share a bit about how you built that relationship with your instructing solicitors. There was one firm that I've always been quite keen on because there were two partners of that firm that really inspired me as a young person, 17, 18 years of age. There were two partners. They were quite sort of wild sort of city types. And there was a guy called Michael Lee and another guy called Guy Sutton, both still alive. Michael Lee is an arbitrator now here in Singapore at 20 Essex Street. And I first met Michael in 1971-72. So I've known him for 50 years. And he was this guy in his early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, you know, big cases, coming into chambers to see one of the leading silk in chambers at that time called Richard York. And I, I don't know, there was something about Michael that really sort of inspired me. And as life's gone on, now he's one of my great mates here in Singapore. We go drinking together. And how that relationship, I was the mere junior clerk. He was a city solicitor partner of Norton Rose. Guy, still in the UK, uh, lives quite close to me back in Kent. And with Mike here, we often FaceTime with Guy back in London now. I mean, they're both in their late 70s. I'm in my late 60s and we sort of reminisce a bit or whatever. Anyway, that's one particular relationship. But you didn't really start courting solicitors as a junior clerk. That was something that you did as a senior clerk. And it's something that came progressively, even when I became senior clerk at the age of 23, which was unheard of at that time in a set of chambers in Lincoln's Inn. Even then, those three years in Lincoln's Inn, you had conversations, you made sort of relationships over the phone because you dealt with a lot of the same people, but you didn't head off to the West End or the city or out of London to go and visit solicitors. That came in the early 80s because I then became senior clerk at four Essex quarters, as it was then known. And then I saw it more relaxed, commercial, different approach to life. And I did start to lunch with solicitors. And it was lunching then, not so much grab a coffee, which has become in later time because lunches can take up a bit of time, coffee's quicker, but it's building relationships. And then I would get out of London, and as my newspaper article recently said, I'd head off to Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Cardiff, Birmingham, you name it, I went in. Because we were getting work from the provinces, and the work was good work. There were some very good regional firms. The early days of Evershed's, Adelshaw's, 
Diblat and DLA, which they came later, they came in the 90s. But a lot of the firms that formed those partnerships, the Eversheds, the, the DLAs, the Adelshaws, I knew all the firms all joined together. Alexander Tatum and Manchester was a firm I knew well. Eversheds of Birmingham was a standalone firm. Hepworth and Chadwick of Lee. I remember going to Manchester for the first time. And I walked into Adelshaw's offices and I knew the partner because he'd been into chambers in London, a chap called John Gatenby, who at one time was at Linklaters in London. And he said, David, this is amazing. You've come from London to see me in Manchester because the clerk at Chambers over the road in Manchester, because there was the Manchester bar, clerks at the Manchester bar have never been to see me. And the fact that you've come all the way from London to see me, you can almost pack up and go home because you've made a statement and you've impressed us. I didn't just go home because I stayed for an hour and talked about Chambers. I went on to see a number of other firms. For me, I never really understood why the provincial bar never got it, that I would come from London, visit all the provincial centres. The local bars knew that I was doing this, but never thought to compete with me by doing it as well. I had a clear run. It was, I don't know, it was just a different mindset by clerks in the provinces. And I used to get teased by other clerks in London as David Greaves touting tours. It wasn't touting. It was just relationship. And so it started off in the UK and then, then extended overseas. Because I just thought when you're ringing up a solicitor to talk fees on some big cases, you want to know the person you're talking to. It becomes a colleague. And so you can see his face, where the office is, whereabouts do they sit in Manchester, what his room looks like, you know what his view out of his window looks like. And you have a much more comfortable conversation. Because he may know that I'm a private pilot or he may know that I like to do this or whatever. I know what he likes to do. So you can almost kick off the conversation was, you know, maybe play golf recently. Because rather than just ring up and say, I want £100,000 on this brief, you warm them up first. And in fact, in some ways, by warming them up first, you put them on the back foot. And I feel I have an advantage. It's just a way I did it. Would you say that in... one of your advantages is that you actually learned to fly in the 1970s? Yeah, and That was something yeah. that people found very interesting, came up all the time. How did that all come about? I'd been in Chambers, so started in Chambers in August 1971. I was always aeroplane mad. And Richard York QC had an aeroplane. Wow, here's an aeroplane. And so I was immediately, you know, the great Richard York, and one of the stars of the bar at the time, but I was a junior clerk. And, I, and he could see that I had a passion for aeroplanes. I was very interested. He had a, what was called a single command, a Golf Alpha Victor Charlie Mike, I can remember, AVCM single command. And members of Chambers would give the clerks Christmas presents. My first Christmas in Chambers, he gave me membership to his flying club and my first flying lesson. I got the books from the Civil Aviation Authority and I looked at what one has to do to learn to fly. And I looked at all this and I thought, completely beyond me. I really couldn't see myself getting my head around any of this. And so I didn't take my first flying lesson until July 1972. But I thought, gosh, he's gone to the trouble of giving me a flying lesson. At least I better go and use it. And the airfield was Biggin Hill, which was famous in the Second World War for Spitfires. It was only five miles from where I lived. And I was driving at that time. I passed my driving test in April 71, took my mum's car to Biggin Hill and had my first flying lesson. And I was completely... 
completely and utterly blown away by the fact because you go with an instructor, you're in the pilot in command seat and you're airborne and he says, right, take the controls. We did effects of controls in the first flight and I landed, or the instructor landed, and I went home and told my dad, this is just amazing. I want to do this. And uh, my dad said, look, I'm going to uh, help you. Richard York helped me. My flying lessons were £8 an hour, and I was getting £8 a week. I worked at the flying club at weekends, doing the bookings, filling the aircraft, refueling the aircraft. I made myself sort of indispensable at the flying club over time. I mean, I went there for the first time in July, and probably by August, September, I was there at weekends, taking the bookings and doing all sorts of things. I was clerking aeroplanes as opposed to clerking barristers. And so that was July 1973. Two, and I got my license in March 73. So nine months later, I passed out. I got my license. So it's coming up 2023. I don't have my license for 50 years and I never look back. Flying has been my life. I've been all over the place. And then Richard York, when I got my license, he said, well, go on and get your twin rating, which is two engines. And then you can have the keys to my airplane. So I used to fly his twin then. He sold his single Comanche and bought a Cessna 310, Golf Alpha, Zulu, Yankee Mike. I had the keys. He travelled a lot for work. He was often arguing cases in Hong Kong, Singapore. And so he just wanted his aircraft used. So I used to take his aircraft to the 2K in northern France. Michael Lee, who I've mentioned earlier, took him and his son Rory to France. And it's just gone onwards and upwards. I owned a share in my first aeroplane in 1988. And I own an aeroplane now, which I share with three other people, Golf Oscar Alpha Lima Delta. And when I could, and I was in the UK and before COVID times, fly every weekend somewhere. And I would, on a Saturday morning with one of my co-owners, we would go from Biggin Hill to Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Islands, have coffee. We'd go from Guernsey to Deauville in northern France, Normandy, and have a ham baguette and another coffee. And then we'd fly from Deauville back to Biggin Hill. I'd be back before midday. And I would drive home and I'd see all these people coming out of the supermarket, having done their weekly shopping and everything else. I'd go, hey, I've just been to the Channel Islands, northern France, and I've come home again. <laughs> I wasn't big-headed about it. It was, for me, it was a passion. I got a big kick out of it. It made my weekend. It was just a mindset. And when I got back, I was very tired. I used to doze in the afternoon. But it was just what I liked doing. I, I, I was the only clerk at the bar who was flying actively. So it was a conversation point. And I mentioned Guy Sutton earlier, Michael's partner at Norton Rose. Guy was learning to fly at the same time as me. And we've done a lot of flying things together. I was the only clerk member of the Lawyers Flying Association, which was mainly solicitors. But I did that to try and attract aviation law to chambers. So I was trying to persuade solicitors that I had massive aviation experts in chambers. I was the aviation, if I was an expert, I didn't know any aviation law, but I thought I'd love to get aviation work into chambers. And I did to some extent succeed because I knew a lot then, the Lawyers Flying Association knew a lot of aviation lawyers. So I've used all different methods to get work. Having dealt with so many solicitors, what is the most effective way to market a barrister? Oh, what are their pet peeves as well? It's all about my relationship with solicitors and their relationship with me and trust. 
and judgment. And I would go to see solicitors and they might say, hey, David, I've got this case. Who do you think is the best person in chambers on this type of work or that type of work? And because I said it and because they'd known me and trusted me, they would, um, you know, come to me with cases. And they can't make any lawyer, any solicitor, instruct any member of chambers. It's a matter for the solicitor, the lawyer, and for the client to agree. What I can do is open the door, make the introduction, because once the solicitor and the barrister are together, it's, it's then up to the barrister to do his or her stuff. And if it goes well, it doesn't always go well. Sometimes cases are a bit of a disaster, but it doesn't mean the relationships at the end. It's just the case. As long as you've done your best, that often brings the next case. For me, it was relationships. It's increased now with the modern bar now build their own relationships because it's acceptable to go out. In the early days, it wasn't acceptable for a barrister to wine and dine a solicitor. That was thought not acceptable. It was certainly unacceptable, and I never did it. Just go knocking on doors. I never cold called. I always had someone to make an introduction by saying, you ought to meet David Grief, or I was building the relationships within firms. But it is just about relationships. And that's the way I've always been. Wasn't there a change to the Bar's Code of Conduct where barristers could then start accepting privately funded work directly? Do you feel that that changed the nature yeah, of your work? Uh, it is a change. So direct access, as it's called. Yeah. So there was direct professional access where surveyors, accountants, and the likes of that had licensed direct access. So suddenly, one was also marketing, in my case, accountants, because we did, in Essex Court Chambers, as we eventually became, work in the indirect tax world, VAT. So there were accountants to be marketed, because clients would go to accountants. Accountants wouldn't need to go to solicitors, because they could instruct directly. So in some ways, solicitors used to get a bit peed with the bar, because they suddenly had direct access. And then there was direct access from the man or woman on the street to the bar. We didn't do that because suddenly you're turning yourself into being a solicitor slash advocate. And so much more was required. So we've always done professional direct access or work directly from in-house lawyers, the likes of Shell, for example. We had very good relationships with Shell because they were all in-house solicitors. And so I would be courting in-house to come direct to the bar. But um, yes, that was a change. I mean, going back to the 70s, when I talked about planning, local authorities could come direct to the bar. So you have your solicitor within Northamptonshire County Council or whatever it is. They have their own legal team. They could come direct to the bar. And you mentioned briefly about how barristers would encounter disasters. I wonder if you have particular memories of how you assist when barristers cop out? I mean, it depends on the situation because sometimes it's relationships. Barrister just does not get on with the solicitor. Solicitor wants to take a load of bad points because the client wants to take a load of bad points and perhaps the solicitor won't tell the client. Rather, the client sort of cop, the solicitor cops out and lets the barrister deal with it and that causes friction. You then got a barrister who is critical of the instructing solicitor's team 
thinks that the junior solicitor on the case or whatever is just not up to the job. So, David, this is ridiculous. You've got to do something about it. That's me. And what can I do about it? And I did try once to do something about it. And that was 30 odd years ago. And I spoke to the solicitor about one member of the team. And I learned very, very quickly and never made that mistake again, that the solicitor would immediately and quite rightly protect his team. And it's the same the other way with the bar. You know, you learn by your mistakes to say, you know, Mr. XQC doesn't think that your number two is up to it. And sorry, but the main man, main woman on the case would immediately protect the number two. And be quite honest now, as a clerk, you cop out of that. If, if a member of Chambers has got an issue, then that's really for the senior solicitor on the case with the barrister concern, then they should go and have a drink and sort it out between them. Don't put me in the middle. And there's been a number of situations over the years where senior member of Chambers is complaining about a junior member of Chambers and said, this person just hasn't done the work, hasn't dug deep enough, hasn't looked at it so hard because there's these cases there that this person never found and this is unacceptable because how can I trust the work if I'm don't think the research has been done. David, you've got to go and talk to them. And I said, it's not my job. And, and of course, they cop out because they find it too difficult to have that conversation. But I said, look, if you've got a problem with that junior member of Chambers, you go and deal with it yourself. Because if I go and deal with it, they're going to not know the whys, the lock falls and everything else. And I haven't got the answers to those questions because I'm not the person who's found the problem. And I, so I say to the senior members of Chambers, and often some of these members of Chambers were their pupils. So, you know, you've built up that relationship. And if someone is not doing the job properly, you need to take them on the one side and help them because they need to learn. I can deal with many situations, but it's not for me to guide them legally. If they're not doing it right, the senior barrister should direct them. And then you've got, it's often situations where cases don't go well. Cases don't go well because the client has been found to be lying or haven't disclosed a document. And that's just when cases go bad. We did a lot of shipping cases, and a lot of the shipping cases, there were scuttling cases where the master gives the order for the ship to be sunk, and then the owners then claim on the insurance. And we did a lot of cases like that. And day before trial, suddenly, amazingly, this telex is found where the master has said, pull the plug. And the case has to settle. But that's no fault of the barrister. It's certainly no fault of the instructing solicitor. But then a lot of what I had to deal with was just relationships where maybe the member of Chambers wasn't putting all his effort into the case, was doing six other things at the same time, and that was easily found out. So I had to be the interface between the solicitor in many, many a situation like that. But you also know in a set of Chambers the members of chambers you're going to have this issue with. You're fully aware of it before it happened. You had that off at the pass, even before the solicitor said, I've paid this person, you know, all this money. And why is he not working 100% on my case? Why is he in court on this? Why is he in court on that? So you can see that all coming down the road. So you, you can get it before the solicitor's got there. What about on the flip side? I mean, having worked with so many barristers, are you able to identify when someone has that star quality and they might be ready to take the silk? Do you plan for that as well? Yeah, that's a double act. That is uh, the barrister and the clerk talking about it. I could raise it. The barrister could raise it. The barrister could raise it. And I say, 
It's too early. It's not right. There was a time in my career, and probably it was back in the 80s when I'd been at Essex Court for maybe the first 15 years. I don't know. Maybe where the process changed. But you had a feeling that that member of Chambers was sort of right for Silk. I don't know what, I just had a feeling that he, she had got to that level where you thought that he had that or she had that sort of star quality type of work, what people were saying about them. So when I clapped someone called John Thomas, John Thomas, he eventually became Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Thomas. And I remember him in 1982-3 talking to him about his silk application, the form. It wasn't a very big form in those days, but some difficult questions. And I remember going to see Anthony Evans, who was the head of Chambers, who then became Lord Justice Evans and also Chief Justice of the Dubai International Financial Centre. And I remember going to talk to him saying, John wants to apply for silk and there are these questions and can, can we just sort of help us on the answers? Because he hadn't gone to the bench at that point, but he was in silk. He'd seen the form. He knew what the form And I used to keep the forms. Years after that, people would want to apply. I, I knew the sort of pro forma. I had my sort of model of what other people had said without saying John Thomas said this or whatever. I had it. And don't get me wrong. In those days, it was always Mr. So Mr. Thomas, Mr. Evans. It was never Christian names in those days. Not even me as senior clerk. That only changed in the early 2000s. But you just, you had a hunch. And in those days, you applied and you got it. And there would be 25 or 30 people on the list. You'd go down to the House of Lords. They'd get sworn in. And it was much more of a sort of family occasion because the wife, husband, the kids, the mums and dads all turned up. You went down in a daimler to the House of Lords, the clerk, so the silk wears the full bottom wig and all the regalia. And the clerk wears morning suit, striped trousers, tails. White, the silk has white gloves. The clerk didn't have white gloves in my day. But it was a big moment when someone took silk. A proud moment as a silk is like starting all over again because you're competing with all those other people that have just taken silk or those people who are young in silk. And it's a bit unkind, but I, I used to say, when you've just got silk, you're not a real silk. I used to say a rail. You didn't become a real silk until you'd been going for 10 years. You made your name because progressively there are more and more and more silks. It was like cream rises to the top. And eventually, well, I sort of perceived as one of the starred silks. And, you know, I was lucky in the set that I had that those that took silk have risen to the top. I've had many, many, many silks many, many, many judges, not only to the English High Court, to the Court of Appeal, to the House of Lords, as it was then, now the Supreme Court, but also to the International Court of Justice and to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Never achieved Luxembourg, never got anybody onto the bench in Luxembourg, but I had two judges to the International Court of Justice, Dame Rosalind Higgins and Sir Christopher Greenwood, and Judge Tim Micah to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So Chambers has done well. And you have these people. I see these people as juniors, as pupils. And I remember I went to Strasbourg when Tim was sworn in as the UK judge in Strasbourg. I knew him as a pupil. It's a very personal, personal relationships one has with these people. They're not just Clark Barrister. You've grown up with them. It's a team effort. 
And as they join the bench in Strasbourg, you almost start to say, it's like dad saying goodbye. It's, um, <laughs> you, they're no longer in my charge. Or the high court bench I go to swearing in. In those early days, used to go and see the Lord Chancellor. Me, the new judge, the family, we would go to the Lord Chancellor's private room. It was very, very personal and a massive, you know, incredibly proud to see these people. And I've always made a point of keeping in touch with my judges as they've gone onto the bench. I go and have tea with them. How's it going? What are the cases? Any feedback on my members of chambers when they appear in front of you? And then talk about when they go onto the Court of Appeal, maybe to the Supreme Court. I'd go to the International Court of Justice and go and see uh, Sir Christopher Greenwood and understand what work they're doing. Who you say were the people that influenced you the most in your career? The first influence was Richard York. He had the aeroplane. That didn't matter so much. He had an Aston Martin. He had a Rolls Royce. None of that really mattered. And it didn't, uh, the aeroplane impressed me, but the other things didn't really. Though I did used to use his Aston Martin. (laughs) I had the keys to that as well. But it was his outlook on life. He's sort of commercial. He saw the future of the bar. And at the time, I didn't know, but it was rubbing off. There is a silk at the English bar called Stuart Isaacs. He appears a lot in Singapore. He was Richard's pupil, and we often talk about Richard. The other person was, when I joined Essex Court, he was a fantastic administrator, and I learned so much from him because a lot of what I had to do, I didn't really know much about it, but John was a great teacher and all of that. We were the first set of chambers to have a computer. We were the first set of chambers to form a management company. So the staff were employed by the management company rather than the head of chambers. We were the first set of chambers to have a brochure. Eventually, I mean, the bar council used to come up with ideas, and I would think, I thought about that five years ago. This is not new. So John and Richard York were of great influence. Gordon Pollock, head of chambers for 20 years, a a tough, 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 tough man. But I learned a lot from him. But equally, I was privileged in the 90s to clerk Sir Michael Carr, who'd left the Court of Appeal. Lord Mustall, when he retired from the House of Lords and came back to Chambers and Arbiter, I learned a lot from Michael Mustall. You know, one was learning from people like that. When I was a junior clerk, it was Richard York. And when I started in Chambers, it was John. In the Chambers I spent three years in, in Lincoln's Inn, there was no standout person there. But Chambers as a whole, they were being in a commercial slope stroke planning set and joining a set that did trust wills property it was really different life very slow very frustrating for me members of chambers weren't very quick they take months to do an opinion i learned about patience i learned about diplomacy and in fact one of the people that commented on the times article how to deal with cantankerous old people but it was a fantastic learning for me in that three years, because when I eventually ended up at 4S6 Court, that I'd had a real grounding in some of the things which were so important for the next 40 years. Wasn't 4X Court a place you always wanted to join? It wasn't a place I always wanted to join. My senior clerk, Leslie Page, said when I was a junior clerk, that the best set of chambers in the lab was 4S6 Court. It was the set that everybody looked up to. And I thought to myself, if I'm ever going to get to a set like that, not necessarily 4S6 Court, I need to have a grounding as a senior clerk summaries. So a job came up at 17 Old Buildings in 1976. 
I'd been in the job, what was it, five years. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for this because if I want to progress in my career, this will be a good school to learn. Learn the craft of a senior clerk, not a sort of high-flying commercial set. So I joined 17-year-old buildings in, in February 1977, and I was 23. Amazingly, the job at Forest Six Court came up. I didn't suddenly rush off an application. I went back to Grays and Chambers. I sat with my senior clerk, Leslie Page, and I sat with Richard York and said, what do you think? And they said, David, go for it. And I went for it. And the first interview, I think, was an absolute disaster. I thought, well, that's it. I've blown it. It's not going to happen. You know, and I forgot about it. And then the clerking professions are rumoured though. And there were all sorts of people apparently had got the job. So I thought, well, they've even been as rude not even to tell me I haven't got the job. But as far as I was concerned, that was it. And I then got a phone call in June 1980, probably, and saying they won't be back for a second interview. And I thought, well, what's there to lose now? You know, as far as I'm concerned, nothing to lose. So I went back for my second interview in a much more relaxed mode, happier perhaps, I don't know. Perhaps all these words of, you know, I haven't got the job and everybody else has. I went for that interview. I was interviewed by the whole of Chambers and it was only 20 strong. And I remember all these characters, not only sitting in front of me, but sitting all the way around me. I sat in the middle asking all sorts of questions. Again, it was pre-CV, no CV. It was just about how I'd approach situations, how would I market, how would I do this? A lot of which I'd learned as a senior clerk in Lincoln's Inn. And the next morning, I got a phone call saying, you got the job, July 1980. And I started on the 1st of October 1980. The other thing is, and I don't recommend it to anybody, and I've been saying this right the way through my career, uh, I married my junior clerk from uh, Lincoln's Inn. So we had a relationship. She was my only junior clerk. I started dating her in November 1977, and we kept it secret from Chambers until we announced our engagement in February 1980. And there was only one member of Chambers who had a suspicion nobody else knew. Wow. I'm amazed. I mean, it's such a small community. (laughs) I know. Kept it. I had a life of weekends and a life during the week. So my junior clerk, Joanne, run to court and do this, go and do that, go and do this. And then when we announced our engagement, she then went on and became a clerk in another set of chambers. And then I left. And so when I got senior clerk at 4S6 Court, I got congratulations from the chambers that Joanne was at, from my old chambers, from grazing chambers, because it was the big moment. The world went around the country. I thought, bloody hell, who am I? You know, I've got this job, age 26. When you yeah. got that job, weren't you the youngest person to be running? Yeah. yeah, at the time. I was the youngest. And 26 now is just unheard of. And I look at 26-year-olds today and I think, gosh, what I had to do then, I couldn't see people of that age doing it today. I think it's just family life and the way things that may be that I had, uh, you know, had to do things myself. I think going back that last year at school is a big, big thing for me being deputy head boy, school swimming captain. I went from nine years of knowing nothing to running the best set of chambers in the country. In fact, it was the best set of chambers in the world. I got married to my wife in 1981. We got engaged on Valentine's Day 1980. It was a Thursday. The next year was a leap year. So Valentine's Day fell on a Saturday in 1981. So I got engaged and married on Valentine's Day. And... I used to say uh, I did that so I could save money on Valentine's cards. 
And we went to the US for our honeymoon. We spent a month flying around the US. I had unlimited air travel with American Airlines. And people say, how on earth did Joanne put up with this? I went to see a law firm in Los Angeles on my honeymoon. And because I came from Forest Six Court, and because the worldwide international reputation of Six Court had the red carpet rolled out for me. I was then 27. And we were up in um, Toronto, and we did a lot of work for uh, a shipping line called Federal Commerce. And they were in Montreal. So I said to Joanne, I just want to nip out to Montreal today. You, you stay behind. I just want to nip off to Montreal. And I went off to Montreal to see Federal Commerce to meet Bashetti, who was the big man there. And so that's really where it all started for me. And my first visit to Singapore was uh, November 1981. I met many lawyers, but the first person that really made an impression on me is now a member of the Supreme Court here, Justice Lowe, Justice Quentin Lowe. And I knew Quentin Lowe. He was early 30s. I was 28. And we are very close. We've grown up together here. And that's why now I'm here in Singapore. Singapore has been a massive part of my life ever since I, I first came here like when I came in 1978 with my old set of chambers in Lincoln's Inn, there was an opportunity arose and I thought I'd better grab that opportunity because I'll never go again. I come here in 1981. I've been coming here every year, sometimes twice a year ever since. And I know a lot of history about Singapore. People just mouths open because they can't believe I've seen the Singapore River, Boat Quay when it was a dump. How did the conversation start about you coming to Singapore? Because I've been coming here so often, because the people that I knew, they weren't on the bench, but they were senior lawyers. The areas in which they were practicing were commercial law, construction, arbitration. It was all the talk about the Singapore International Arbitration Centre and the development there. The idea of having a dispute resolution centre, Maxwell Chambers, and I was asked, what were my thoughts? And I thought, blimey, I'm a clerk from London and I'm being asked about the development of things in Singapore. But this was um, 2004, 2005, 2006. And having grown up with Mark Savile, the great Johnny Vida, Toby Lander, Stuart Boyd, Martin Hunter, people in the world of arbitration and the best in the world, I knew quite a lot about it and in international practice with the ICJ and all of that. I was at the forefront and I, I was very much part of the development of international law arbitration in the UK. And they wanted my advice. And, and as it goes on, Maxwell started. SIAC moved to Maxwell. SIAC then grew. I knew Min, who was the chief executive of SIAC at the time. Then Chambers, Essex Court Chambers, took rooms at Maxwell. So did 20 Essex Street, so did 1 Essex Court, so did 39 Essex Street. And we were the sort of overseas sets, creating a presence at Maxwell, which Singapore were very keen on. But I always had a sort of dream I wanted to do better than that. I used to say to the Chief Justice, Sundarish Menon, and he wasn't Chief Justice at the time, he was either attorney or he might have just been in practice. Uh, I want to be the first senior clerk in Singapore. I used to bore people with that subject. And then Toby Landau was admitted to the bar here. So that was one of the building bricks. Wasn't he, so he the, first, the first QC to first be admitted? In the history of Singapore, yeah. And that was one of the building bricks because suddenly there was an opportunity here because Toby was admitted to the bar and he could practice here, where up to that point, you had to be admitted on a case-by-case -case basis. And we had a lot of cases in Singapore, yeah, but it was always ad hoc. And a lot of my silks appeared here. So I talked to Toby about how we could build on this. 
And so we had lots of ideas. Another guy now, Silk, well-known in Malaysia, Jernfei, we sort of talked about these plans. And then VK Raja, who I uh, knew on the, the bench and used to see a lot, and he was then Attorney General. His daughter, Mira, was doing a secondment in chambers in London. She was interested in employment law at that time, and she was doing employment secondment. She said to me in uh, November 2016, hey, dad's retiring. So I thought, ah, this is an opportunity. So I'm running off to Toby and to Joan Fay and saying, this is another potential building brick. So I emailed VK to say, would you be free for breakfast on the 4th of January 2017? And which he came back and said, yeah. And we went to Raffles Hotel the day before it closed for refurb. And it was only he and I there. And I said to him, I've got this idea. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to do that. This law firm wants me this, that and everything else. And I just kept talking through breakfast. And by the end of breakfast, he says, this is a really good idea. I'm really, really attracted by this idea. And that was January 2017. And by October 2017, Chambers launched here in Singapore. And I'm regarded as the midwife. A lot of stuff was going on in the in-between the Chambers launched. And I turned up here as CEO in July 2018. I was called CEO because though lawyers knew what a clerk was, in-house clients wouldn't understand what a clerk is. A clerk is a lowly person. So I had to be called a CEO. I never liked the term CEO because there are a number of people in London who are becoming CEOs and chambers. And I like the historical term of senior clerk, because it's a history of senior clerk. Anyway, when I got off the aeroplane at the end of July from London, as I stepped onto Singapore soil, I said to myself, I am the first senior clerk in Singapore, and no one can take that from me. Toby might be the first English silk to be admitted in Singapore, but I was also the first senior clerk. And both of you were working in Singapore's first pure chambers practice. Yeah. What were the uh, big challenges in, the, in establishing yourself? Uh, like, did people uh, understand what you were doing? Because it's so different. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that was, um, it's like London. It's London. Group of self-employed people. They were all sole practitioners in a group practice, which is what is known here. The group practice had a name and the sole practitioners. And it's getting the message across. And we were small. We're still small. But we could do cases against each other. This happened a little bit, but it was too, a little bit too small to do it. Chambers will grow. Whether or not a certain chambers will turn up here, I think it would be a good thing if they did, because they would be good to have competition. But I'm okay. I'm no longer at Duxton Hill Chambers. I've now started my own consultancy. I wanted to do this because I want to do a lot more for Singapore and not be confined by chambers. I want to mentor, guide, help, clerk. I want to help the Academy of Law. The Law Society want me to help them in the ASEAN region and talk to other presidents of law societies. I work with the Attorney General's Chambers in the World of Public International Law with Chambers in London. There's all sorts of things within Singapore bringing work into Singapore, helping the junior bar. I've created what they what is known as the Young Public International Law Group here, and that has gone from strength to strength in the last 12 months. What were some of the big lessons you learned? I sort of learned about relationships. I was lucky because I was so well known. Though I was here at Duxton Hall Chambers, I was still really seen as the senior clerk at Essex Hall Chambers London. I think how to deal with people, I think, probably was... Um, yeah, the lesson. It's 
different to dealing with people in London. And one of the challenges is where the juniors in China. It's not their fault, but they've started life in a law firm. They've become partners in a law firm. They've never been in a set of chambers. They haven't started off as a pupil in a set of chambers. So they don't even understand me. They know what I did, but they don't understand me. And it was a real, and I, I sort of broke through to some extent, but it, it is quite a challenge to, it, just the relationship is I was trying my dandest to work with them like I did with members of Chambers in London. That was probably my biggest challenge in Chambers because they didn't understand the relationship between the clerk and the principal and other challenges that followed. Yeah. And how do you feel that COVID impacted your work, your industry? Do you know, it, it didn't really. Uh, yeah, I, I've missed the opportunity to go to Australia, to India, to Korea, to Malaysia in particular, and greater bonds with the, the friends I've got in those countries, lawyers. So I've missed out, but I, Zoom has helped a lot in that. But in, in a way, you know, it's been to my advantage because nobody's gone anywhere. So all my friends here are always here. So I've had more time to do what I want to do. And someone's not nipping off to London, Australia or India or somewhere. And what kind of innovations do you anticipate happening further in the legal sector? These are personal views. I think you're going to see more boutique operations, more sole proprietors. I think you're going to see perhaps chambers models, not so much, well, not necessarily Duxton Hill chambers models. I think that you're already seeing sort of Devinder Chambers, Devinder Singh Chambers, Lockby Mean Chambers, which are all sort of boutique outfits. I think you're going to see more of that. In time, I think you may see that the dominant form may not be so dominant. People say that I'm partly responsible for all of this because of the creation of Duxton Hill Chambers. I don't think we can underestimate what Duxton Hill Chambers did in the market because suddenly we've done it. And then suddenly you've got Devinda Singh Chambers, a different model. And that really interests me because I talk to a lot of people, talk to a lot of younger people, talk to them about their ambitions, what they want to do, how they want to do it. So now I've got my consultancy. If I can keep going for another 10 years, which is what I want to do, I've got two dreams. My first dream is to get Singapore on their feet, leading in a case in the International Court of Justice, which is part of my part of my plan. And I think I can get there in the way that we've done so well so far. The other dream, and it's entirely possible, is with another pal of mine who is an English barrister to fly ourselves to Singapore. I'd like to fly myself. And that is entirely possible. It will be in the winter, January time, but to fly myself to Singapore would be something to chalk up and to land at Salita and think, hey. (laughs) Is there anything that you believe in that most people don't? I suppose, really, people would say, I can't, or they want to do this, but they're afraid to ask. And my motto here, and I use it an awful lot here, is if you don't ask, you don't get. And it's a cultural thing. It may be the same in Malaysia. The people, junior, are afraid to ask seniors whether they can do something. They think it's impossible. And if I talk to seniors from the other end of the scale, they would say, of course, why not? But you talk to the juniors, they don't ask. So my motto is don't ask, don't get. What's the worst can happen? Someone can say no. Well, thank you so much, David. I normally end all of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is this. Do you feel like you have found your why? I started life wanting to be an airline pilot. 
So I didn't start life thinking I don't want to do anything else. But I, life is a book and it's a journey. The older I get, the longer I've been doing it. Is I do think that I was on this earth to do what I've done because of what I've created, both in London and what I'm trying to create here in Singapore. That is sort of, you know, I had a purpose. I do think it's in a book. I know where this book is. I don't want to know the last chapter, but it's a journey. So I now do think that I've found my why. Yes. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? If I could change things here in Singapore, which I think would be to the advantage of Singapore, if I could get someone on their feet in the ICJ, that I could be remembered for that. I could be remembered for being the first senior clerk in Singapore. I've already created a legacy, perhaps, in London. And I've now been credited in London for creating the international bar. People say, David, you started the bar now being recognized massively abroad. And people now say, David, that's all down to you. And I never think, think myself, I mean, that headline, a giant. I've never thought of myself that way. I'm quite embarrassed with those figures. When I started, there was amazing, amazing characters, the senior clerks, the great Ron Burley, the great Sil Bachelor. And I still today do not see myself as one of those characters. I'm told I am. They were really, really amazing clerking characters. But um, now people say, David, you are, but I don't see myself in that way. I just carry on as I am. I do my job. <laughs> and what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person oh um good at what they do approachable transparent fair sums it up probably at least in my profession good judgments another one and where can people go to find out more about what you're doing i will have a website one day you know i'm talking to website designers and i'm building my website but dg at davidgrief.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to speak to anybody. Anybody's got any questions, anybody wants to chat over the phone from any part of the world. I've already had this on LinkedIn from people want to chat with me as a result of my piece and times last week. So no one should think they can't bother me. Of course they can bother me because they want to know something or they want to learn or how can they do this or how can you do that. But that's how they can contact me. Well, thank you. Very much for connecting and also an enormous thanks to GN Lee, who is in fact standing next to me at the moment. Thanks to GN for uh, connecting us. And that was the end of episode 60. The show notes and transcript can be found at solismywide.com forward slash 60. Alongside a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And if you've been enjoying this podcast so far, we recently launched a Patreon page for this podcast to make this podcast even better than before. So if you'd like to support this podcast, I would love for you to join and be a patron. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting an incredible Y Combinator founder who has pioneered a very new type of developer school, where students can attend their nine-month course entirely for free and pay back to the school only after they've started earning a decent income as a software engineer. We explore this founder's journey from vagabonding around China to dropping out school being homeless in Silicon Valley, and how he got into Y Combinator and ended up starting his coding academy. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.